You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. But before we get started, we had just a couple of announcements. One, we have a new video course coming out called Reading the Bible Through a Love-Centered Lens. This is a six-part video series based on my book, Love Matters More. And you don't need to have read the book to take the course or to get anything out of it. It's available to buy and watch on October 17th. And it came from a lot of questions I got after the book came out. Like, okay, what do we do with the Bible now? What what? a way we can approach it. So we go through the history of some of these interpretive lenses, as I call them in the course, and then focus on a love-centered lens and what it means to read the Bible through that. So like all of our other video series, this course will be pay what you can for one week. So on October the 24th, the price will increase to $60. We would encourage you to get a couple of people together. This is a great way to get groups interacting around some of the questions that we wrestle with at the Bible for normal people. Again, available to buy and watch on October 17th. Don't forget, it's only pay what you can for one week. So head to the BibleForNormalPeople.com front slash love video to get the course today. Then secondly, we're excited to announce the newest title in the Bible for Normal People book series, Romans for Normal People. It's written by our good friend, Daniel Kirk. He's an award-winning New Testament scholar, author, who's spent years engaging normal people about the Bible and nerdy things through blogs, podcasts, books, speaking. This book is great because it doesn't just give you the historical, literary context of the letter, though of course it does all of that but it also wrestles with what it means to read Romans well. And that's important because reading Romans well is not always something we as Christians have done well, well. Romans is not just this collection of one-liners that we can wield against those with whom we disagree. It's Paul's plea to the early church to put aside their petty squabbles and get on with the business of living like Jesus, to stop waiting for the new creation and just start living it. So with our latest book here, Romans for Normal People, you're invited to you know, think about Romans in a new way and engage with the text as it is. And of course, we couldn't ask for a better guide than our good friend, Daniel Kirk. So the book officially comes out on November 1st, but you can pre-order Romans for Normal People today. You can also get a bonus gift when you pre-order by going to the BibleForNormalPeople.com front slash books. So for today's episode, we couldn't have asked a more perfect segue because we are talking about Paul with Pamela Eisenbaum. Pamela Eisenbaum is not only a New Testament scholar, but one of four Jewish New Testament scholars teaching in Christian theological schools. So we get a unique perspective today as we talk about Paul and salvation. She's the author of Paul Was Not a Christian, as well as many other books So we hope that you get a lot out of this. It was a really exciting conversation for me, again, to have that unique perspective of a Jewish New Testament scholar as she sees Paul from the perspective of Judaism. Okay, so here you have to think like a Jew for a minute. And one of those is that salvation means a world, literally a world where people don't fight each other and people don't know hunger. It's a world where people behave in a kind of idealized way, as a way God intended for humanity. When Paul talks about salvation, 
I think he mainly is talking about collectivities of peoples, not individuals. But I think Paul has a much bigger view of the sort of reconciliation of humanity to God than most people give him credit for. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Well, welcome to the podcast, Pamela. It's great to have you. Thanks for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. Well, we want to start with a little bit of background on you. So what what got into your psyche, into your heart, mind, soul that drove you to New Testament scholarship in general, but Paul in particular? When I was first starting to teach, uh, because I never envisioned I would be a scholar working on Paul. That wasn't something I focused on in graduate work or dissertation. But it comes from teaching. I taught introduction to the New Testament, like pretty much any other New Testament scholar would. And I was very disciplined in those days. And I used to read texts in Greek (laughs) to get ready for class, just to be very prepared. And whenever we came to the Pauline material, I always felt like the translations were more obscuring than I would experience in the Gospels that, that were problematic. There was other stuff going on. And later, if you want to talk about some examples, we can do that. And so I started making little translations because it was hard for me to illustrate a point about Paul with them looking at the RSV or the NIV or pretty much any translation. So, And then, of course, because Paul is known as kind of the father of anti-Semitism and you know, I'm Jewish, obviously, and, and I grew up, by the way, in conservative and orthodox synagogues. And uh, my father comes from a very orthodox background. So, you know, I thought of Paul as sort of the one who just, you know, killed it for the Jews. I mean, just ruined everything. And Jesus as the good guy. And that's pretty much what Jews, I'm overgeneralizing, of course, uh, that Jews have thought of. And that, you know, Paul said some things that sound pretty horrific uh, when you're reading them as a Jew or when you're reading them as a Christian with sensitivity toward Jews. So, 
I realized because I was also interested in Christian anti-Semitism that Paul was a place to focus one for teaching and explaining things more that I didn't see elsewhere and uh, speaking to the issue of anti-Semitism in a contemporary context or Christian anti-Judaism, if I'm speaking more properly in historical context. Yeah. So that is, uh, that's a fascinating entry point, I think, into Paul. So you, you were seeing some problems in translation of, of Paul and also just things that Paul says that were problematic. And so you decided to dig into this more and the more you dug into it, you started having a career around Paul. Yes, that's right. And I think there was emerging, there were some scholars who really began to influence me. But by the way, also, I went to Harvard Divinity School and um, you're a graduate of Harvard, as I recall, mm-hmm. Peter, at least in the doctoral program. But Christopher Stendhal was my advisor. Oh. And yeah, so he he obviously was an important influence. And I didn't mention this earlier, but he had encouraged me to work on Paul and I had no interest in Paul at the time. But obviously his voice was... Um, could, could you talk about who he is? Because uh, uh, some of our listeners sure. might not be familiar with him. Sure. Uh, so Christopher Stendhal taught, uh, was a New Testament scholar who also was a Dead Sea Scroll scholar and um, was an amazing scholar. And he taught at Harvard for many years, as well as in Sweden. And he was a um, bishop in the Swedish Lutheran Church who became the Bishop of Stockholm. In fact, retired Harvard to go become the Bishop of Stockholm. And I I remember he makes that decision right about the time I graduate from my master's program at Harvard. And I remember being surprised at that. And I asked him, why would you want to go to the church now? I had such a scholar's bias, I think. (laughs) And he said, I'm just as much a man of the church as I am a scholar. Uh, That left a big impression on me. Uh, Wrote some influential and highly readable things. Um, should people be interested in? Right, um, right. Yeah, he was he was an amazing books. scholar and a person too, mm-hmm. from what I understand. Mm-hmm. So he was, he was indeed. Well, you you mentioned just before. Let's get into Paul a little bit more specifically. You mentioned uh, examples of of translations that were problematic. You know, uh, mm-hmm. for for engaging Paul. Do you have an example to give to put some feet on this? Yes, let me give perhaps a a simple one. So in uh, Romans eleven twenty eight, so if you were looking at the NRSV or an NIV or most, I can only think of one exception off the top of my head, that verse starts with, in English, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. And then it goes on to say, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors. And the they here are uh, Jews slash Israel. Paul vacillates in using that term. But if you're looking at an um, NRSV, you know, the little tiny letter notes that that appear, not the, you know, commentaries, but the little translators notes there, you'll see right at the bottom, it'll say enemies of God, not in the Greek. So out of (laughs) well over 5,000, yes, the whole phrase, the whole, or I'm sorry, of God, they just added it. And this phrase, so um, in the late 90s, when the internet, you know, was just proliferating like crazy, there were a lot of neo-Nazi Christian groups starting websites. And they would quote this verse 
by the way, in concert with Genesis, to argue that the Bible, um, that Jews were descendants of Satan, right? So we don't maybe want to get off track into how their exegesis works there, but to say the Jews are the enemy of God, you put that together with certain elements historically of Christian theology, like the charge of deicide by the church that Jews killed God uh, because of the crucifixion, their contribution to the crucifixion of Jesus, how Christians read certain stories of the interaction between the snake and Eve. So this little phrase, enemies of God, adds to a lot of problems that if you if you just read it with the Greek, you wouldn't have. So it just says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. And if I trans if I were writing the translation, and as you know in Greek, word order doesn't matter. That's a slight overstatement. But you can put the subject, the object, the verb, and anywhere in the sentence. And so um, that's reading it sort of uh, what I just said as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. That's reading it in the order of the words in the Greek, but it, all Paul means there really is they're, they're enemies of the gospel. In fact, that's what it says. They're enemies against the gospel. And I think all he means he's been discussing in Romans 9 to 11, how the Jews rejection of his message gives more time for non-Jews, the Gentiles, the nations, to receive the message that he's preaching. So he thinks it's a good thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. But they're not enemies of God. They oppose his message. So all they need to say is, you know, they oppose the gospel. Or, and it's just, by the way, a part of it. I don't want to get into too much grammar and cause everyone to fall asleep. But why add the words of God? I think there much I've, I've never chased down the whole tradition of this, but I think they assume that the message of the gospel is also God. I mean, there's a theology embedded there. So because Paul, I think, is much more important, really. So let me just say this. I think, you know, people sometimes ask me, is Paul really the one who founded Christianity? You've, you know, people who have argued that, that Jesus you know, is in the fold of Judaism and Paul's the true founder of Christianity. I don't know that I would say that, but I would say this, the form and direction that Christianity takes owes itself to Paul and particularly Protestant theology rests on Paul since Luther himself said that the gospel is justification by faith which is weird because Paul said the gospel is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Luther knew that, <laughs> but Luther argued that, you know, the point of the death and resurrection was justification by faith. So, so much is at stake. And I would say this, by the way, this is true of progressives and evangelicals when it comes to Pauline theology. I'd love to get to that at some point. I think Sorry. let's jump, let's jump into that a little bit because what I hear you saying is, not just Paul is the crux, but also all these layers of tradition that have been added on to Paul and maybe close readings might ask some serious questions of these various interpretations that some of us who grew up Protestant or evangelical maybe take for granted. So are there a few things that maybe we can jump into that you wish everyone knew about Paul that might cause us to ask some of these questions that at least loosen up our like what I, you just said about 
enemies of God and the assumption that the gospel is God would have been right in line with how I would have grown grown up. The tradition I grew up in would have made that equation. So are there other places like that that maybe we can explore? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So things I'd want people to know about Paul. So most important to me is that Paul didn't hate Jews, condemn Judaism, that he lived and died a Jew. And I don't mean an ethnic Jew. People would concede that point. I mean, religiously, he's just as Jewish at the end of his life as he is at the beginning. And the understanding of the construction of Christianity as something in opposition to or over against or a correction to what Judaism once was, that understanding or Christianity as the fulfillment of Judaism, that that rests in Paul, not in Jesus. I mean, maybe you could point to a few verses, but really that understanding is rooted in Paul. So that's the first thing. The second is Paul did not worship Jesus like a god. Paul never talks about that kind of religious devotion to Jesus. So Jesus has to say, uh, Jesus is always distinct from God. You don't have a trinity theologically yet. That comes much later. Um, This is an obvious one for many most scholars, I think, but may not be for everyone. And that is that Paul didn't write all the letters attributed to him in the New Testament. That's an important one to know. Uh, Paul didn't hate women, by the way, either. And Paul, relative to his time, uh, perhaps we can't call him a feminist, but he has certain ideas about the role of women that are very unconventional and uh, moving in a very liberative direction that he still needs to be given more credit for. And I have one more, well, one more worth articulating. <laughs> I, I have more I could think of, but one more. And that is, and this is the most controversial one from me. When Paul talks about salvation, I think he mainly is talking about collectivities of peoples, not individuals. And I think he's much more inclusive, uh, what some people might call universal salvation, which, as you guys know, gets condemned as a heresy pretty early on in Christian history. But I think Paul has a much bigger view of the sort of reconciliation of humanity to God than most people give him credit for. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week, and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital, and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways, and that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy, and I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash B-N-P. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Can we start with the most controversial one and talk about that? <laughs> sure. I mean, th- this is certainly something that many people think about, including myself and Jared, you know, and how, what, what is Paul after when he talks about salvation? And um, I don't mind saying I've gotten into a little bit of trouble, not that I care about, you know, in Romans, Paul really isn't talking about the individual as much as he is talking about groups of people and Things. So can you can you flesh out, explain more about that, and maybe if there's a passage or two that you can point to to help us understand how salvation for Paul is not, you know, the Romans road that, that Christians talk about sometimes, which is all about how individuals avoid hell, but there seems to be something else that Paul's talking about. You know, I only lo- learned about the Romans road like maybe five years ago. From You're a so student. sheltered. Um, I am. I mean, how as can a, you as be a Paul Jewish scholar? Person. Yeah, I know. I, I'm late, but that's a, I never heard any of my scholar friends mention that, but I love it when students bring that in. Um, so the first thing is, I think Paul thinks that the end of the world is imminent. So I think Paul is very much, you know, what we call an apocalypticist. He doesn't just think about the end of the world. He thinks that the end of the world is imminent. And the, the reason he thinks that is when he had an experience of the risen Jesus, I'll just call it that. I think he has some sort of experience he himself describes in Galatians 1 of the risen Jesus, that when he has that experience, he associates resurrection of the dead with the end of the world. Because, you know, in Jewish tradition of his time, and even now, People don't willy-nilly get up out of the grave after dying. They don't get up three days later and wander around like zombies. The resurrection of the dead happens at the end of the world for the purposes of the final judgment. So when Paul has his, his experience of the risen Jesus, whatever else that experience does to him, it signals to him that Jesus is the beginning of the end. And he even calls him, you know, the firstborn, the firstborn of the resurrection of the new children of God for the new world. So in that tradition of the end of the world, he appeals to certain prophetic 
traditions that talk about all the nations, people know these well, all the nations streaming to Jerusalem to recognize the one true God. And so that's the imagery that Paul has. And when he talks about all the nations of the world, and when he uses that word ethne, nations, it gets translated Gentile so often, but he, he really means people groups. And, you know, there's no such thing as an individual Gentile. Even my, so the word ethne, which is the plural for Gentiles or nations, translates from the Hebrew, goyim. And a goy is a nation, not an individual. So when Paul uses, you know, a singular, he doesn't mean, you know, a non-Jew. He doesn't have a word for an individual non-Jew except to maybe call them a Greek or something else. But that also gets distorted in translation. So Paul's got this tradition of all the nations streaming to Jerusalem, and he understands his mission as speaking to peoples in general. And to your last point about an example, I think, since I'm in Romans 11, Romans 11, you have this language about how the Jews will reject the message until the full number, the full count of the Gentiles has come into the fold. And I think when you say full number, he doesn't just say the Gentiles have come in or something like that. All the nations come. It's an emphasis on the full number. And then the very next verse is, and so all Israel will be saved. So Scholars have long thought when Paul says that he, Israel no longer means Jews, that it, in fact, the Vatican had a stance on this basically until several years after the state of Israel was hmm. founded, that the church is Israel. In fact, that's why the Vatican voted against the formation of the state of Israel in 1947. Seriously, that was stated. We can't, we can't recognize Israel because we're Israel. So, And, and by the way, the I church, heard that too in seminary. That, that the right, church Israel, is Israel is now the church. Yeah, right, 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 right. That Paul has redefined Israel. And I there's a way in which Paul does have a sort of a broader vision of who Israel is, but he hasn't changed the meaning of the word. In fact, the fact that he first mentions the full number of Gentiles and then all Israel, yeah. it's a very big picture. I think he it's a way Paul breaks the world. He's a traditional Jew, right? He's sort of it's there's Jews and everybody else breaks the world into those two things. So when he mentions those two groups with the adjective, everybody, that's everybody for him. And I used to be more open to the, maybe he's redefined at the very beginning, you know, when I was just beginning my work on Paul and I, I didn't know what I thought about what Paul exactly means by Israel. Did he, did he change its meaning? And I think in the end, you can't say, People have to end up saying, well, he doesn't mean, he can't really literally mean all of Israel, all the Israelites, whether they believe in Jesus or not. But the fact that he doesn't just say Israel will be saved, he says all Israel will be saved. The fact, and there's no textual variance <laughs> for that. So that's a pretty big claim. And you, I know I heard you on some podcast not too long ago, refer to Romans 8 about how all of creation is groaning. Mm -hmm. As the new world comes into being, he uses the language metaphors of women in labor. In Romans 8, there's a way in which Paul thinks all of creation is going to be transformed 
And so it's everybody. And by the way, I don't literally think Paul literally thinks that this transformation is like people are going to live in a different place, like in the sky, in heaven, in some other part of the cosmos. I think Paul thinks that this world gets transformed to a kind of messianic age and I, where the lion lies down with the lamb. And if, if that is the case, that this is your vision of the world, this means everybody who's in the world. So maybe then that that's a tie-in because I think we could spend all of our time just on that. I mean, each one of these five points that you've made could be their own podcast for sure. But we're talking about salvation and we've talked about how Paul takes that collectively and, and likely universally. But then that does raise the question of an earlier point you made that Paul didn't worship Jesus as, as God. And so for, again, my tradition, there is no salvation without Jesus being God. And so that does tie that question into it. So if Paul didn't worship Jesus as a God or as God, how did Paul see Jesus? And then what is salvation if it's not Jesus is God and sacrifice himself as God and all of that substitutionary atonement stuff? Okay, so here you have to think like a Jew for a minute. And obviously ancient Judaism and modern Judaism, there's a big difference there. But there are some, you know, kind of entrenched ideas there. And one of those is that salvation means a world, literally a world where people don't fight each other and people don't know hunger. It's a world where people behave in a kind of idealized way as a way God intended for humanity. And Paul does use the language of eternal life that he doesn't envision an end necessarily to this. And I'm not sure what his sort of metaphysics and time and space are and whether he even thought that through. He's not a systematic theologian, but I don't think he means. So when I hear Christians talk about being saved, I assume they mean my individual soul. I'm not going to hell. I'm going to heaven and I live eternally somewhere else, not on earth. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I do think that Paul thinks. So when you talk about people's being saved rather than individuals, you don't have to worry about every individual being saved. You know what I mean? So if I can say the Greeks will be saved, I can leave out the Greeks I don't like. I mean, when you start, <laughs> you know, and people say to me, if you believe in you're really going to have Mother Teresa and Hitler in the same room together or whatever. the And I'm like, well, no, when you think of whole people's. Uh, just like when we talk about the survival of humanity and we don't mean like every individual person, we mean more like as a species or as an identifiable group. That's what you mean. So there's right? this vision then is of Paul, of all the people groups of the world um, getting along. There's no more war. There's no more hunger. And then that way of life goes on forevermore. That's kind of eternal life. That's right. And I should also say, by the way, I don't think Paul knows thinks about hell at all. So even if you disagree with me on the universal salvation point, Paul thinks that if you don't get to live in that messianic utopian world, let me put it that way, then you just go extinct. That would be the alternative. You don't go to a place of eternal torment. You just permanently die. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so the salvation, uh, yeah, I was, I was, uh, you're really getting at something very important for me, and I know for people who are listening, 
collective salvation, the the ethne, you know, the nations, mm-hmm. doesn't mean every individual in those groups, right? That's right. Okay. So a, a question that always comes up, because I, you know, I, I happen to be very big on the notion of collective uh, a collective vision that Paul has, like especially in Romans, but the response I always get was, "But how about individuals? Don't individuals matter?" And does Paul speak to individuals? So, how how would you address that for people who might be wondering? Like, doesn't Paul care at all about individuals uh, naming the name of Christ and being saved by that? Okay, here's maybe where we get to the most controversial point of my own view. <laughs> I think that. He does think that non-Jews do need to confess Christ, but I don't know how literally he thinks of every individual. So if you, let's say he's talking to Cretans, let's just, I don't know, or Romans, let's take some, um, you know, people group he would have uh, been familiar with. I think ideally when he's preaching to people, just like when you're talking to anyone, you come to see them as individuals. Paul has friends. He has people he cares about. And at the pastoral level, he's thinking about individuals or very, very small communities because otherwise, how can you be pastoral? Uh, you, you don't interact with abstract entities at a pastoral level. You do that when you're thinking theologically. So I think, I think that he does think that Jesus' death is a sort of shortcut <laughs> for the nation. So here, here's where I almost hate to articulate this because it's it's so arrogantly Jewish. It's not, it's not, and it's not a theology I would advocate uh, necessarily. But but Paul is really he thinks Jews are superior. I'm sorry to say. And so he thinks that Jews who've been in a covenant with God always they're not in a state where they need salvation the way non-Jews do. They're not in a state of alienation from God. Paul doesn't think everybody's alienated from God. He thinks people who worship other gods are alienated from what he thinks of as the one true living God. And Jesus is, and I don't know how literally Paul thought of this, but is a kind of atoning sacrifice that functions to reconcile people. And by the way, Paul sometimes does use language of reconciliation and redemption. In fact, he probably uses that more, the word redemption, more often than he uses the word salvation to mean kind of the same thing. You need to be redeemed to God because the number one sin for a Jew, at least a Jew like Paul, is worshiping other gods. That's the number one sin. It's the sin in his mind that leads to all other sins. And it's a sin that makes you fundamentally impure. You you can't even share the same space with God. So Paul, before the end of the world comes, he wants everybody <laughs> to be reconciled with God. And I think that's to remove their state of alienation. So yes, he does need real people, and that would be real individuals, to understand what Jesus has done for them, to evoke modern language and therefore become reconciled. So it's not that, of course, Paul recognized individuals and he liked some people and hated some and others, I'm sure. And in Romans 2, he even talks about individuals and how, by the way, to you know paraphrase, there are good Jews and bad Jews, there are good Gentiles and bad Gentiles. 
there have always been so. Paul recognizes there are people who worship other gods who are honest in their business dealings and Jews who aren't. So, and by the way, I also think there is a way which he does also have a tradition of you need to be accountable for your sins. Mm -hmm. And there, maybe Paul literally does mean your individual sins. That's how later rabbinic theology goes. It does think that way too. But I also think there are sins of the nations. I mean, this is all over the Hebrew Bible, right? Mm -hmm. That the Assyrians, uh, the Malachites, they, they sin against Israel. That often there are groups of people who've created injustices, and that's what they need to be forgiven for. So I, I think, uh, obviously, representatives from those groups would need to be repentant in, in some way. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. So I have a, a picture in my head and I, I want you to tell me if I'm, I'm picturing this correctly. So I think of it like there is this program of salvation that we get hints of throughout the Hebrew Bible as well for all the nations mm -hmm. to be worshiping the one true God. And then 
there's this sort of finish line that I, I think of it like a football field. Like there's the touchdown line with this a vision that Paul has of Jesus. Oh, the, this, the time has come. That's very urgent, apocalyptic. And we have to, the nations have to come to follow God. And it's mm-hmm. almost like the Jewish people are say like at the, at the 20 yard line that they're almost in the red zone. The, all these other people are, are, they're not as they're, they're further behind. And it's almost like Jesus allows to, Jesus allows that space to get, it closes the gap. And so that we can, we can usher in, um, the nations then into this, you know, salvation or salvific period or the messianic age together. So there's, there's a privilege of the Jewish people and Jesus is here to sort of close the gap for everyone else in that sense of accountability. And if we're going to all get across this finish line, there has to be some accounting for things. And Jesus does this accounting on our behalf. Is that a way of saying that? That is a beautiful, <laughs> a beautiful summary. I'm, I'm not a big football fan, more of a basketball fan, but I, I love the 20 yard line imagery and absolutely. Yes. And maybe you can help me find ways to communicate this to students or your listeners, because let me give you a couple examples of, you know, stage earlier in my career when I'm, I didn't know I was going to teach in a Christian theological school since I'm Jewish and became a scholar of early Christianity. And all my advisors, even Christer Stendhal, tried to talk me out of that. For one reason, my Hebrew was much better than my Greek for a long time since I had learned it as a child. But I, I didn't have any of the background you guys have. But I have an Orthodox Jewish background. And I'm steeped in that and steeped in the hermeneutic, in the sort of, what do I want to say, theologies of scripture that are very different from Christians. And so I can remember an instance once where I was newly in junior high school and I met my locker, so excited that I have a locker, and the girl next to me had a locker and we would, we didn't know each other previously, we would run into each other occasionally. And one day she asked me, have you been saved? And I look at her and I go, from what? (laughs) (laughs) Like, you need to be, you need to have something you want to be saved from, right? I mean, and she was speechless. She actually didn't know what she needed salvation. I mean, <laughs> I, I think the answer is death, right? But she was, so this is how steeped in her world she is, right? And I don't have any of that. So the question didn't make sense to me. And there are other ways where there are certain assumptions where people see problems, Christians, I think, where that Jews wouldn't have the same problem. You know, I so I think there are certain ways of reading Paul let me give you another example of one of the things I have to work against. So in an, in an intro level class, when people first start reading Paul, Paul uses the language of Jews and Gentiles, particularly all over Romans and Galatians. My students often think Paul identifies with the Gentiles. And they often, when they read Jews and Gentiles, they see Jews and Christians. And they associate Paul with the latter group. I mean, it's crazy because Paul says denigrating things about non-Jews and whatnot, but that's how much the paradigm shifted when you just had Christian readers, or I should say non-Jewish readers of Paul that have a very different formation than ancient Jews of the first century did. And so initially I found it very, very weird that it was so hard for me to get students to think that Paul identifies as a Jew and he's on team Jewish 
And he wants, he thinks like maybe some modern evangelicals do. He is faced with the problem of how can the God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, my God, who created the whole world and all the people in it, is there really going to be a final judgment where he's going to kill everybody except Israel? Because I think evangelicals or former evangelicals I meet often have that cognitive dissonance and maybe it's suppressed a lot. But I, in my own experience of teaching, and obviously I don't really get a representative sample of evangelicals, I suspect that a lot of those folks have that, a cognitive dissonance that we'd have to frame in modern evangelical terms. Is God really going to condemn everybody to hell who doesn't confess the name of Jesus and get baptized? Mm-hmm. There's a way in which people already feel uneasy with that, that it doesn't fit. Why would a God created the whole world then pretty much destroy almost all of it? And that's called salvation. It, it So it creates cognitive dissonance. And I think Paul, Jesus becomes a way for Paul to understand um, that God wants to be reconciled to all of humanity, that actually God wants that. I mean, so I, I think, by the way, this would set Paul apart from, say, most of the people who are responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls. So there were Jews, right, in the prophetic tradition, that tradition we refer to of all the nations streaming to Jerusalem and, you know, the whole world, this, this idyllic period and all all peoples recognizing God together in harmony. There's a counter tradition where God does kill everybody else who oppressed Israel and Israel alone is left standing. That theology is also, that strain is also there in the prophetic tradition. But so there are some Jews who bought into that. And then other Jews like Paul, who I think are, just can't buy that. And they embrace the other one, more positive, more inclusive, I don't know. Why do people like exclusive? Just people, it's the old, you know, I don't want to be a member of a club that, you know, everyone else wants to be a member. I I mean, I think that what this is painting the picture for me of is just how influential our framework that we are born into and that get, you know, gets downloaded into us from our own traditions is because I think of it like almost like a paint by number or color by number where we all start with the same colors you know we have the same set of markers that we're using but when you put those numbers in different parts of the picture you end up with a vastly different understanding and just given the framework you just laid out i can imagine someone who grew up very uh fundamentalist evangelical everything you just said i I can just imagine for our listeners they're gonna have to listen to that like six times before it makes a, a lick of sense because it is a completely different starting place for what's happening in our new Testament and with Paul in particular. And, and I think that for me is the takeaway of how, how we can read these same texts and come to just, it's not even like two sides of the same coin. It's like, we're not even on the same planet Mm -hmm. in terms of the language we're using. And that's, I find that, I find it actually encouraging to be honest, but I just, that's. Wait, you find it encouraging that nobody will get it? (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's, be, it's because, you know what it is, is because I think our listeners, in particular our audience, I can't speak for anyone else, but I think for our audience, they're looking for something that doesn't have that cognitive dissonance that you talked about, something that does seem to resonate and make sense with everything else they've learned about the Hebrew Bible and about Paul and about the context of the ancient world, where all of this systematic theology that we've been 
building up for 500 years in the Protestant tradition and downloaded, it starts to get really abstract and away from the ancient context. And so by learning more and more, I know for me in, in my studies, more and more, once I started understanding the ancient context, all of that other abstraction made less and less sense, but I didn't have another way Mm. to put the pieces together. And that's what I hear you doing is putting the pieces together in a way that is more more congruent with that ancient world and the, and the way that, that ancient Jews would have, would have thought about things. And that's what I find hopeful is it gives a new paradigm to go, aha, new categories. Yeah. That makes, oh, that makes a lot more sense. So, yeah. yeah. You know, I want to speak to the chasm between the ancient world and the modern world and the, the problem of having the Bible and the biblical tradition as some sort of answer book for modern problems in which the ancients never could have imagined the problems or just the questions we have that we bring to the book. Over the years, I've come to realize that Christians need some sort of theology of scripture that allows for recognizing historical context and also recognizing that if you have a living faith, the Bible also needs to be a living text which is an expression, by the way, both Jews and Christians have used, that it's a living text. And in Jews, because they have this notion of the written and the oral Torah, which Paul has a rudimentary version of the same thing, and the oral Torah is all the tradition that goes with the written Torah, and that tradition is revealed on an as-needed basis. So do you know, uh, Peter might know, there's a there's a rabbinic story, you know, that begins with the question, as rabbinic stories have, often do, you know, why was Moses on the mountain for 40 days? I was on Mount Sinai for 40 days. Uh, often rabbinic stories begin like you're about to tell a joke. Um, and the, the answer is because God had to teach Moses Torah. And by the way, he was a poor student. And like most rabbinic things, they didn't just make that up. They get that from the biblical text of where Moses said he's slow of speech, mm-hmm. that people in the ancient world associate how well you speak with how well you think. So there's actually several rabbinic stories in which they imagine that God really wanted to give the Torah to Ezra or Rabbi Akiva or somebody else because Moses was, you know, less than the ideal candidate. But the story is quite an entertaining story and it does try to explain the problem of why Moses has to be on the mountain uh, for 40 days. And it's that oral, and Moses doesn't understand and doesn't understand. The story is very funny. At one point, you know, God tries to reassure him by saying, you don't have to understand because later times, it some of what I teach you only applies to a time, be, you know, beyond you. And there, there's someone who's going to come along way smarter than you, Moses, and his name is Rabbi Akiba, and he will <laughs> teach Torah to the people. And Moses, at one point, is so fed up with the whole, you know, he's on, you know, week three, and asks God, he says, you're not a very good teacher. Uh, why don't you give me Rabbi Akiba, and I'll learn it from him, and he's such a good teacher. And God zaps Moses into the future. And he finds himself sitting in the back of the classroom listening to Rabbi Akiva lecture. And (laughs) he sits there for a while and he realizes this isn't helping. It's making everything worse. Okay. I want to go back to Mount Sinai. And he becomes a more patient student. But the idea is, and you, I, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of responsa, but even, you know, even after the 
the sort of canonization of the Talmud. So we won't go into the whole history and structure of rabbinic literature, but the Talmud is sort of fixed in place somewhere around the eighth century. But Jewish leaders continue to write something called responsa. And this is whenever a new situation, a new technology, a new social situation, uh, emergency situations caused by war or climate create problems for observing Jewish law. And rabbis following that the oral Torah, this might be a time where we need, there's new messages we need to discern from scripture to speak to new conditions. So, you know, when Edison is about to light up New York City with electricity, rabbis ask, actually a few of them write to Thomas Edison to ask, when you turn on the switch, do you create a spark? Because obviously the Bible doesn't prohibit the use of electricity, but it does prohibit kindling a flame on the Sabbath. And so this is why for Orthodox Jews, they didn't turn on and off lights because the rabbis debated the point in the time of Edison and decided that flipping a switch was analogous to lighting a spark. And that would be part of the tradition of oral Torah. So on the one hand, it's all revealed to Moses at the same time, but it's only sort of, or it's all taught to Moses when the Bible, when the tablets are given, but that it's only revealed, as I said, on an as-needed basis. So Christians, it seems to me, one of the things I notice they get stuck with is it either means this or it doesn't mean this. And if it doesn't mean this, why should I be a Christian? Mm -hmm. Why should I revere the Bible? Whereas I've never been to any Jewish congregation, no matter how lefty. And in Boulder, Colorado, we get some very lefty Jews. <laughs> There's no Jewish community in which it would ever come up like, maybe we should stop reading the Torah in our liturgy. Like I've never heard anyone propose that. Yeah. Whereas I spoke not too long ago at a Presbyterian congregation where the pastor, a progressive Christian asked me, you know, we, we read Native American poetry, which we value in our services. And when some of our my um, parishioners asked me, why, why should we stick with the Bible? <laughs> he said, I don't really have a good answer. And I, I think it's because if it's past and we can only talk about it in its historical context and it doesn't speak to modern ethical problems. I mean, you guys have articulated this a lot on your show, right? This problem. And it seems to me this problem doesn't manifest itself in quite the way in Judaism because of this notion of the written and oral Torah. And because that's a very old tradition in and of itself, that's not a It's, it's baked into idea. the tradition. It's baked into it. Yeah, right? and, and Christians don't. I think Christians have had that, but I think we've lost it in modernity. And, and not to blame everything on Martin Luther, but I think the Reformation had a lot of impact on you know, the medieval Christian sense of flexibility and, you know, there's a moral meaning, there's a literal meaning, there's, a, you know, a crystal lot. There are different levels of meaning and they don't, not everyone has to agree on what those meanings are. And I think for modernist evangelicals and evangelicals are modernists at their core, it's hard to have that kind of flexibility towards scripture and, and realizing that scripture exists because it's been read and understood within traditions that see themselves as changing. And that's like a sacred obligation to yes. maintain those changes. That's, that's actually an act of worship. That's how you do this. And 
that that is a to, for me and and Jared we do talk about this a lot that's i think a fundamental misunderstanding of just the nature of all this on the part of um some some iterations of christianity not all yeah yeah yeah, yeah. well you know um we could go on talking here for hours. I have about 40 more questions, but we'll have to have you back sometime, Pamela. But uh, we just want to thank you for taking the time. This was this was just fun. I don't know, Jared. Yeah, was it fun? Yeah, I agree. It was fun just to talk with you and to hear your perspective on Paul and salvation, especially. And um, just- I love that we left a cliffhanger that we started with, oh, by the way, uh, Paul didn't write all the letters attributed to him. And, and we're just going to leave it. We're we'll not going right to even there, address folks. it. And we, we'll invite Pamela back. And at some episode in the future, maybe a year, maybe two, one day, you'll be surprised. And we'll actually talk about that. Yeah, we will. Okay. Thank you so much, Pamela, for great. coming on. It's been fun. And thank you for having me on. You've just made it through another episode of The Bible for Normal People. Thanks to our listeners who support us each week by rating the podcast, leaving a review, and telling others about our show. We couldn't have made this amazing episode without the help of our producers group. Sarah Bowman, Neil Andrews, Mark Spangenberg, Ashley Soto, Megan Selbach-Allen, Carlos Ocoa, Alyssa and Jeremy Truman, Chaplain Mike, Timothy Rink, and Mason Heidelberg. As always, you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash the Bible for normal people, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People team, Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Stephanie Spate, Tessa Stoltz, Nick Striegel, Haley Warren, Jessica Shaw, and Natalie Wyand. 